Friends, we live in a world of constant change, of constant change, a world in which cars are automated and watches come embedded now with their own EKGs. It's a world where we can buy food from our phones and then have that food delivered to our doors, which we then can open with our phones without ever having to get up. Change is everywhere. Change is in our technology. Change is in our very notions of morality. Even in our churches, there's change, whether it's coffee in the pew or denim in the pulpit. It seems we can't escape change. Look at the college students laughing over there. And yet I think some of the uncertainty and the suspicion that can naturally come with change, deep down, we long for change. I think deep down we desire change because change holds promise. Change holds potential. It offers the hope that our lives might improve, that they might become happier, more satisfying. If nothing else, our lives might become more convenient. So we change where we live at rates that past generations simply couldn't comprehend. We change careers. We change even employers, like the changing of the seasons. We change our homes. We change our diets. We change our wardrobe. We change our hair. We change our schools. We change our names. We change spouses. We even change our gender. All in the hope that change might in some way deliver the happiness that so often eludes us. So friend, I wonder, for all the change in your life, do you feel liberated? Do you feel liberated? Or are you left this morning, despite all that change, feeling even more trapped and more hopeless and more defeated? Friend, if so, is that possibly because you're seeking the wrong kind of change. What does the Bible have to say about real, genuine, lasting, personal change? And is such change, is that even possible? Friends, that's what I want us to be thinking about these next two weeks as we take a break from our normal preaching rhythm and we look at this topic of conversion. Now, if you've been coming around to UBC for a while, you've noticed the, the normal practice of us as a church, it's to work through a portion of Scripture. As We've been working through Ephesians for much of the past few months. We'll work sort of section by section through the text, and the message always has as its primary point the primary point of the text. And friends, that's just what we call expositional preaching, where the point of the text is the point of the message then applied to the hearts of the hearers. And that's what we normally do. And I prefer that as our normal diet because in that way, God's word sets the agenda for our lives, not the whims of any individual preacher. So if you look at the preaching card, Stephen noted that at the welcome announcements, you're going to see coming up, we've got a series through Exodus. So some of you may remember three years ago, one of my first sermons was the first half of Exodus, two sermons. We're going to finish that. Some of you wonder, you start books and you don't finish them. Do you ever finish them? I do. We're going to finish Exodus, just a few weeks. And then we're going to get into Second Peter, heading into Christmas. You know, but occasionally we're going to take a brief break in order to do a topical sermon. We've done them on baptism. We've done them on membership, on marriage, on stewardship, as I think we, as the elders, think we need to be instructed. 
And this morning and next week, it's this topic of conversion. And I'm covering this topic in part because in today's pluralistic age, conversion, especially religious conversion, that is a dirty word. That's not a word we're to utter. It smacks of pride. It smacks of arrogance to suggest that one must convert to your religion as if your religion is better. It reeks of coercion. It reeks of manipulation even, sort of winning souls as, as in your swindling others. But, you know, I raise it for another reason. And that's because within our own convention of churches, within the Southern Baptist Convention, there's a lot of talk about decline. So yes, we are the largest Protestant body in America, over 15 million members. And yet, on any given Sunday, two-thirds of them are missing. Sleeping in, sleeping over, we don't really know where they are. Over 10 million regularly AWOL on Sunday morning. Baptism numbers are down, leading the past CEO of our convention to tell Baptist Press, virtually everyone who sees these figures will react negatively and will lament the poor state of our churches, our lack of evangelistic fervor, our increasingly irrelevant programs, and indeed we should lament. Now, everyone has their hunch as to why this is the case. You know, I served on the National Executive Committee for our convention. I heard lots of folks share the reasons. I serve on the State Executive Committee here in Arkansas. And some will say, it's our lack of evangelism. I would say that's partly true. It's culture, some say. Perhaps that's true. It's Trump. I'm not going to wade into those waters. <laughs> it's that theological boogeyman, John Calvin. Right, why can't that guy just stay dead? <laughs> Friends, I've heard all of the answers. But I'm quite certain that the greatest threat to our convention, it's not Calvinism. It's not secular culture. It's not the courts. It is, however, a poor doctrine of conversion. And we, as a body of churches, are now reaping what we ourselves have sown. And that's not just true in our convention at large. It is, in its own way, true even within our own church family. So this morning, I want us to think about the root of conversion, about the root of conversion, sort of what it is, how it works. And next week, we're going to think about the fruit, right? some of the implications that conversion has for our lives as individuals, for our lives as a church together. And this morning, I want to look at sort of the root from five different angles, five different perspectives. So I'm going to give these out to you. If you don't get them, don't worry. I'm going to say it again later. But first, the need. So the need for conversion, not optional, but essential. The problem, not diseased, but dead. The initiative, not ours, but God's. The change, not reformation, but regeneration. And the means, not methods, but the message. You didn't get it, don't worry, we're going to work through those as we work through this message this morning. So first, let's think about the need, the need for conversion, not optional but essential. First, the need, not optional but essential. So when I moved from Washington, D.C. to Fayetteville about three years ago, what did I do? I adopted the Razorbacks. 
I may have grown up. I grew up in Pac-12 territory. I attended, rather, a, a small conference college. But in moving to Fayetteville, right, this became my hometown. So who became my home team? Well, the Razorbacks did. We got all the swag. We would dress up for games. You all taught me how to call the hogs. You might say I converted. I converted. I became a Razorback. Friends, not that it's been an easy conversion. Oh, my word. (laughs) Oh, it's been a little tough. But I mention this because we talk about conversion like that a bit. Conversion as sort of a transfer of affections. Maybe like moving from Dell computers back in the day to Apple computers, from Starbucks to Onyx, right? From processed denim to raw denim. It's a lifestyle decision, a lifestyle decision. And yet, as much as I might prefer Onyx over Starbucks, when it comes down to it, if I'm in the middle of an airport traveling all night and I need a cup of joe, a Starbucks will do. And that's a bit how people think of religious conversions, right? So Hinduism or Pentecostalism, that's kind of like the difference between yoga and CrossFit. Just different preferences, but it's all exercise, it's all religion, just whatever suits your lifestyle. But conversion in the Bible is not presented. It's not presented as as a mere matter of preferences. Preferences between competing options of, well, of sufficient offerings. It's not sort of competing options of the same, in effect, things. Because the message of the Bible, the message of the Bible is that all of us in here this morning, every single one of us, we are, in fact, in deep trouble. We're in deep trouble. We suffer from a fatal disease called sin, and that sin is destroying us. That sin is destroying everything around us. You know, the Roman statesman Cicero once said, man is a disaster. That was his objective conclusion. And you know what? 2,000 years later, I don't think we proved him wrong. I think we proved him right. Pick up any paper. Read the headlines. Murder. Rape. Hatred. Greed. That all continues unabated. However hard we may try, we can't seem to shake at the core who we are. And the consequence of that is ever before us. The consequence is death. Everything dies. We see it every day, not just physically, but even spiritually. Because the Bible says physical death is but a picture of the spiritual death that every one of us created in God's image will one day face because of their sins. So we read in Hebrews 9, 27, thus man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. So the biblical picture is that we're all in cars and we're careening toward a cliff and we don't have any brakes. And so we can tweak with a stereo all we want, right? We can fiddle with our seat, try to make it a little more comfortable, but that doesn't alter the outcome because the change we all need is far more radical, right? We've got to do a 180, a complete reversal if we're to have any hope, if we're to survive, which is why the constant cry in the Bible, Old Testament into New Testament, it's what? It's to turn. It's to turn, to turn back. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn. Turn from their ways and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Similarly, Isaiah 55, 7. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Right, conversion, it's not optional, the Bible's saying. It is essential. It's what Jesus demanded. It's what Paul himself preached. Nothing short of a radical turning from sin and toward God, toward Christ for salvation, right? From idol worship to God worship, from self-justification to Christ-justification, from self-rule to God's rule, all those 180s, all those pictures of turning is how the Bible depicts our need for conversion. So when the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 cries out to Paul, what must I do to be saved? Notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, hey, you know what? You're taking this religion thing a little bit too far. It's all a little bit too serious for you. Just, you know, relax a bit. Take a deep breath. Listen, I can tell you're a deeply spiritual person. It's okay between you and God. It's all right. Just take a, just relax a bit. No, he says, he says what? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's Paul's response to him. And Paul wasn't offering merely suggestions there. He was giving commands. Joy Hawkins read, you know, earlier from John 3 in the service. And there we're introduced to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee. A guy by who all accounts was a very religious man, very serious about God. And yet what does Jesus say to this teacher? He says, you must be born again. You must be born again. He didn't merely suggest it, he commanded it. Which means, friends, if you've come this morning and you've come and you are not a Christian, Jesus is saying to you, He's saying your spiritual state, it's a perilous one, right? It's a dangerous one. He's saying outside of Christ, none of us can have any hope. None of us can have any confidence. We can have no assurance that God will accept us. We can have no assurance that God is in any way pleased with us. Your only hope, if you've come this morning, not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is that God is pleased with someone, but it's not you. He's pleased with his own son. He's pleased with Jesus. Jesus alone has pleased the Father perfectly because he alone has lived that perfect life that you and I every day choose not to live. And every decision we make, when we choose our way over God's way, we are saying, I would rather worship self than you. And there is judgment for that, but Jesus never did that. And yet he went to the cross as a substitute for sinners, willingly laying down his life so that all those who would see their own self-worship for what it is and would look to Christ in perfect worship, repenting of their sins and trusting in him, those can be saved. Those can be reconciled to God, not on the basis of what they do, but what Jesus himself alone has done. Friend, that is the good news of the gospel. That's what Christians hold out in this thing called conversion. And if you've come, God wants you to know that. It may strike you as an offensive message, but it's an imperative one. He doesn't want you to be confused about how you can be reconciled to him. Be saved by trusting in Christ, repenting of sins, and believing upon him alone. The simple message of the gospel. But second, I want us to note the problem. Second, note the problem. Not diseased, but dead. The problem, not diseased, but dead. 
Now, one of the things I've loved about moving to Arkansas is that when it comes to problems, people don't first look to others. They try to fix their own problems. They fix it themselves. So in our first house rental, when one of my daughters got into her mind that she was going to run over about 20 feet of eight-foot-tall privacy fence, and it was a little horrifying for us all. My wife broke her foot, tore her shoulder, rotated her cuff. It was a bit of an eventful day. I was trying to write a sermon. <laughs> Two of you came out to the house, had some nails, some lumber, some concrete, and you put that fence right back together. I was assuming I was going to have to call some contractor, like get some professionals, an architect even. But no, you just came over, you got it done. When I ran into a problem with fuel injection on my motorcycle, I thought, man, I got to take it in. And one of you said, oh, no need at all. Don't bother with taking it in. Look, on YouTube, I found this guy. He had the same problem. Drill this hole, take this thing out, buy this part. We can fix it. I thought, there's no way this is going to work. Hey, guess what? It worked. Right? No problem too difficult, no task too hard. Friends, I admire that. I admired it a lot. The challenge is that same can-do attitude that can be so admirable. All right, we often apply that in a relationship with God. So no matter how big a mess we might have made of our lives and of things, we assume that we can make it right. We assume the problem is within our own power to fix. We're rather optimistic when it comes to our own abilities. You know, in the 4th and 5th century, there was a British monk called Pelagius. And he believed our natural condition was good. Man, in our natural state, we're good which means we can cooperate with God's grace. We can improve our lot that way. The problem is the Bible says our problem is, in fact, much worse than that. It's much worse than we think. In fact, our problem is disastrous. We read in Romans 3 that Jew and Gentile, which is the Bible's way of saying everybody, all mankind alike are under sin. There is no one righteous, not even one. No one who seeks God, all have turned away. There is no one who does good, not even one. Not even one. No, not even one, Paul says. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. It's why the images in Scripture of our own human condition, they're so dire. Images of what? Of being lost, of being bankrupt, of being enslaved, of being dead. Those are the images the Bible uses. So notice in Ephesians 2.1, which we were in a couple months ago now, Paul didn't say, you're sick and your trespasses and sins. He didn't say, oh, you know what? I know you've caught the sniffles, just the sniffles of a little little sin, but take a hanky, get some rest, it'll all be okay. It's not what Paul says. He doesn't even say we're gravely sick. He says we're dead. Dead, and dead men And women can do nothing to improve their lot. They're dead. No pulse, no color, no movement means no ability. In other words, our problem is not one that can be resolved by by self-help, by more education, by sort of gathering up our own moral resolve. And even worse, he says, not only are we dead in our trespasses and sins in Ephesians 2.1, but he says we are by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. So not only can we do nothing to improve our condition, our condition before God is that we all stand condemned. Friends, that's not how we like to think about our own natural state. 
you know, we approach our relationship to God as if, as if we have something to contribute, as if we have something of value, something that will please him, and it's within our power to provide it. And yet the Bible brings us, all of us, face to face with that crushing reality that we can never go to church enough. We can never teach enough Sunday school. We can never give enough money. We can never be kind enough. We can never be generous enough. We can never be good enough to merit God's will toward us. We can't do a thing. At the end of the day, what does Jesus call us? He calls us whitewashed tombs. And tombs aren't for the diseased. Tombs are for the dead. So third, the initiative. This brings us thirdly, the initiative, not ours but God's. The initiative, not ours but God's. Friends, if we must be converted, and yet we are powerless to do it on our own, it means that God must first take the initiative. And that's exactly what makes Christianity so unique. Every other world religion, it's effectively autosoteric. In other words, it's self-salvation. It provides a means in which you can save yourselves. It's up to you. But in the Bible, it's not up to us. It's up to God. God's the one who initiates. God is the one who saves. So how does he take the dead? And how does God deliver the dead? There's a beautiful picture of this in Ezekiel chapter 36. You know, if you would, turn your Bibles, turn your Bibles there now to Ezekiel chapter 36. If you don't happen to have a Bible on you and those red Bibles in the seat back, I think it's on page 724. Ezekiel, one of the major prophets, roughly, I don't know, halfway, a little more than halfway through your Bibles. Ezekiel 36. How does God take the dead? How does he plan to deliver them? Sweetest sound, Bible pages turning. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 24, God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. My friends, let's stop right there. God is being abundantly clear. There is no doubt in these verses who is doing this work. Over a dozen times he goes on, he is making clear, I, the Lord, will do this. I will do it. Not I'll make it possible, not I'll make a way so that you yourselves can do it, but I will do it. And what will he do? He tells us, he says he will give us new hearts and a new spirit. And not just any spirit, he says my spirit my spirit is the spirit he will give. A spiritual heart transplant is what God offers. That's what God does in salvation. So notice, he doesn't throw a life preserver out so that we can save ourselves. 
He doesn't offer us medicine that we can then take ourselves to help improve our lot and our condition. No, what does he do? He takes dead people like Lazarus in John, and he says, three days in the tomb, he cries out to him, and he makes a guy like Lazarus alive. It's not a joint work. Lazarus is not contributing to that work. God's word does it, and Lazarus becomes alive, and God gets all the credit. It's this promise that lies behind Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, again, that we read earlier. If you have your Bibles, just turn there to John 3. Turn back to John 3. If you were in it earlier, perhaps. If not, John chapter 3. We read there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, not just any man, a ruler. This man came to Jesus by night, said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So notice the image Jesus uses there. He doesn't say unless one learns to walk again, unless one learns to talk again. He doesn't use an image that's dependent in any way upon our contribution, not the strength of our legs, not the coordination of our own tongues. He uses an image in which we are wholly passive. We contribute nothing. He himself being wholly active. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, again, a very religious man, a good man, The kind of guy who would mow his yard, he picks up his trash, he never plays his music too loud late at night, doesn't disturb the neighbors, a respectable man, a good church member, the kind of guy that we would probably want to be like to some degree. And he says, listen, I know, Nicodemus, I know you look respectable on the outside, but you are rotten on the inside. There is still a worm at the core of the apple. And Nicodemus needs to know that. We all need to know that. No one enters the kingdom, Jesus says, without conversion. The problem is Nicodemus thinks he's got his relation with God all worked out. Right? He and God are good. Nicodemus doesn't see his need. He's confused. And so Jesus says, okay, Nicodemus, I see your confusion. Let me help you a little bit more. Let me help make some connections for you, Nicodemus. He goes on, 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Did you catch that? Born of water, born of the Spirit. Do you remember what Ezekiel 36 promised? That his people would be born of the Spirit, cleansed, made new by water. Jesus is not just like, sprinkling a few crumbs and and hoping Nicodemus might find the way. In making this connection, he's dropping like loaves of bread and saying, Nicodemus, I sure hope you can see this. It was really clear in Ezekiel 36, you're a teacher of the law, you should know these things, he goes on to say. There should be no confusion. Now just to be clear, when he talks about water and he talks about being born of the Spirit, he's not talking about water baptism, he's not talking about spiritual baptism for especially spiritual people. Those are two images Ezekiel 36 draws upon to speak of the new creation, of regeneration, of being given new hearts. Those two images speak to one reality. But Nicodemus doesn't see it. Perhaps better yet, Nicodemus won't see it 
because he can't see it. Like the rest of us, Nicodemus is spiritually blind, which is why God's going to have to open his eyes. God's going to have to take the initiative. I mean, think what happened to Paul, right, on the, on the Damascus road. Paul wasn't looking for Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was seeking to kill followers of Jesus, not himself become a follower of Jesus. And yet, what does God do? God strikes him blind, as if to make a point. I know you are spiritually blind, and you don't understand who this one is whom you are persecuting, but let me make it clear to you, and I'm going to remove the scales from your eyes, and you're going to see afresh, and you're going to see rightly. He needed to understand that the one he condemned was, in fact, the one who had been condemned for him. Or take Lydia in Acts 16. What do we read about Lydia in Acts 16? We read that the Lord opened her heart. And after he had opened it and changed it, what did Lydia do? She responded in faith and she responded in baptism. Because God must first take the initiative. What does Jesus say in John 6:44? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you, Jesus says. Salvation is from the Lord. Friends, that is the message all over the scriptures. We can't save ourselves, which is why he must save us. Now, that doesn't mean we do nothing. There is a response that we are all called to make, and we're going to think about sort of the fruit of that next week. But our action, our action is first predicated upon and dependent upon God's prior action, it's why, for example, in our church's statement of faith, you may wonder, why in the world were we confessing our faith together using our church's own statement of faith? It's because there's great doctrine in that statement, and you may be unaware of it. But in our statement of faith, which is our own convention's statement of faith, we confessed earlier that salvation, beginning with regeneration, or the new birth, think John 3, is a work of whose grace? God's grace. Whereby believers become. Something happens to them. God does it. They become new creatures in Christ Jesus. It is a change of heart wrought by whom? By the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in repentance toward God and in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. Do you see how clearly and beautifully it lays it out? God's work and then our response. He first regenerates us and then we respond to him in repentance and faith. Friends, that is not Calvinism. That is just run-of-the-mill evangelical Christianity. And if it's true, if that's true, we can dispense with all the gimmicks in our own evangelism. You know, so often the question we find ourselves asking is not how can I make the gospel available, but how can I make it attractive? How can I make it attractive? We become advertisers, and we try to lure people into accepting it. Right? The gospel is the product. The non-Christian is the, is the would-be consumer. We're the advertisers. We're there to get it out. So we need to get creative. And hey, listen, heaven and hell are at stake. So even if our creativity bleeds into a little bit of manipulation, well, I mean, it's eternity. It's worth it. You know, so a famous Southern Baptist wrote in one of his best-selling books, it is my deep conviction that anybody can be one to Christ if you discover the key to his or her heart. Do you catch that? 
The key, it lies within your grasp and your grasp and my grasp. We just have to find it. And he recommends, hey, one of the ways to get at this key, it's, it's to turn down the lights. Because you know what that does? That, that brings down our defenses. And thus we make conversion. What do we do? We make conversion all about lights and slides. And we make it about extended musical loops. Because we think by setting the right mood, we can move the heart. But friends, we can, we can turn down the lights. We can burn candles. I mean, goodness, we could burn incense in here if we want to. But if we are spiritually dead, you recognize that's like decorating a casket. It accomplishes nothing. No dead man or woman is impressed by a decorative casket. We might be, but they will not be. So I remember stepping into a Christian church for the very first time, and I'm not a Christian. And you know what? All that mood stuff, all that stuff turned me off. Don't pull up my heartstrings. Don't play me like I'm some marionette. I didn't want to be manipulated. And any thoughtful non-Christian will see right through that stuff. And they'll resent it. I resented it. Because I wanted to know, is there really a God? What's he like and why does that matter? I didn't want to be sold something. I wanted to be told something. And I needed to know if Jesus existed, who he was, and why I should believe in him. And of course I can see now that's because God was already working at my heart already bringing conviction in my own heart. Because lasting change, genuine conversion, requires God's initiative before it ever involves ours. Fourth thing to see. The change. So conversion, thinking about the change itself, not reformation, but regeneration. Not reformation, but regeneration. Now, for many of us, I think Saturday is that day when we devote to projects around the house, projects around perhaps the apartment, or we've got to catch up on some of our cleaning, we've got to work out on the yard, maybe you have some laundry that's been building up, you've got to finish it up. You know, I think when it comes to Sunday, we treat Sunday very similarly to Saturday, except Sunday, that's for our spiritual lives. That's where we do some of our spiritual cleanup. So we sing songs. And we hear messages and we think, all right, I've got to get my spiritual life in order. Perhaps you even come and you, you make resolutions. You resolve not to, not to drink too much, maybe not to eat too much. You resolve, maybe I'm not going to be sharp with my spouse any longer. I'm not going to blow up at my kids. I'm going to be honest at work. I'm going to watch my tongue. I'm not going to gossip. Because that's what religion does. That's what we think. It equips us with the tools to improve our lives. Religion, at the end of the day, for many of us, it's about moral reform. It's a spiritual cleanup. Religion exists to make people better. Is that how you view religion? I think it's how many people view religion. It's not how the Bible views religion. Going back to Nicodemus in John 3, that's how he viewed religion. He was an upstanding guy, again, a guy who took religion seriously. He read, we read, what, he went out of his way to find Jesus, a long day, he goes at night, and he seeks Jesus out. Right? Nicodemus is a devoted teacher in that sense. But what does Jesus say to him? He doesn't say, you know what, Nicodemus, excellent job. Keep up the good work, that moral life, that religious pursuit of yours, that's working. That's working. 
Like, press on, brother. That's not what Jesus says to Nicodemus. In fact, he said to Nicodemus, again, this model church member of the community, he said, your religious life, Nicodemus, that religious life is worthless. It won't get you anywhere. It is, in fact, so worthless that you need to just discard it and you need to start over. You need, in fact, a whole new life. Nicodemus didn't need reformation. He needed regeneration. He needed regeneration. He didn't need to clean up his life. He needed a whole new life. And that's what Jesus wanted him to see. Now, it's not what he expected. Nicodemus assumed he was able to do what God would require of him to do. And we assume the same. We assume that God's going to be pleased with our best efforts. But Jesus would have us see that all of the religion in the world, all of our moral reform is worthless without regeneration. Without regeneration. So Christian conversion is not pull up those moral bootstraps. It's not reform yourself. It is rather be transformed. Not reformation, but regeneration. Which is why Jesus never presents Christianity as a list of things to do but rather a person to believe in. For how does Jesus end this conversation with Nicodemus? He doesn't give him a laundry list of tasks. He doesn't say pursue moral reform in these eight ways. It would have been convenient. Nicodemus could have checked it off. He could have felt great about himself. Jesus didn't want him to. He needed him to know something deeper, something more. He says in John 3.15, whoever believes in the Son of Man, so he's looking at Nicodemus, and he's saying whoever believes in the Son of Man And if you know the teaching about the Son of Man, Nicodemus, you know that that Son of Man is standing right before you. Whoever believes in me may have eternal life. Not things to do. A person to believe in. Not how do I fix my life, but where do I look for new life? So how does God bring about this regeneration? Fifth and final observation The means of this, the means of this regeneration, not methods, but the message. Not methods, but the message. How are dead men made alive by the Spirit? Christian advertisers will sell you a program. Trust me, in my mailbox, I get them every day. Pastors will write books to convince you that their methods have proven track records. Do this for sure success. And sometimes, yes, they are that brazen and they are that direct. You know, Charles Finney was a 19th century pastor evangelist, really the pioneer behind much of our current evangelism techniques. They all date back, largely speaking, to Charles Finney. And he put, he put conversion like this. He says, conversion is a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means. Purely a philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means. So what did he do? He instituted sort of this thing he called the anxious bench, where he put people down and he drilled them on that bench. He would employ great psychological pressure, an emotional pressure on the sinner, because conversion for Finney was not finally about a divine miracle, but about devoting oneself to the right methods. Devoting oneself to the right methods. And do you hear again the key to the heart language from someone who would write almost 180 years later? Exact same thinking. 
So when it comes down to it, is it purely methods? Is that what conversion comes down to? Purely methods, purely techniques. How does God say he's going to make dead men alive? You know, he gives us a picture of that in Ezekiel 37. So in Ezekiel 36, he promises this new birth. How is that going to happen? He then tells us, he shows us in Ezekiel 37. If you happen to have a finger still on that text, you can flip there. Ezekiel 37, I think it's on page 725, the Pew Bibles. So he promises the new birth, and he shows how he's going to bring it about. And what does God do? God takes Ezekiel to this valley of dry bones, to a valley of dry bones. He takes him to a mass grave, is what he does. And what does he tell Ezekiel to do at this mass grave of dry, dusty bones? Does he say, dress all hipster, because the bones will love it? It's not what he says. The bones won't be impressed by Ezekiel's dress. Does he say, you know what, use a lot of cultural illustrations and and be transparent and be especially authentic because then they'll know you're kind of like one of them and they'll relate better to you and they'll hear your message more. That's not what he says Ezekiel. Does he say, you know, show them some cool movie clips, you know, a sweet guitar solo. Tell them lots of, of personal stories and anecdotes to entertain them. No, what does he say? Ezekiel 37 verse 4. He says to Ezekiel, this is what you are to do. Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. He says, I'm going to have you stand before a graveyard of stiffs and you are to start preaching. That's what Ezekiel's to do. I mean, just imagine for a moment you're driving down Mission, you know, East Mission, and you're passing Fairview Memorial Cemetery. And you see a guy preaching to a tomb as if he expects something's going to happen. You think he's crazy. And yet the headstone starts to shake. And the ground gives way. And an army rises out of the ground because the Lord has given them life through his word. That's how God makes dead men alive. It's not crass techniques. It is the preaching and the hearing of his word. A friend of mine put it like this. Our job in evangelism is to speak to the casket. God's job is to break that casket open. And that's what God does. It's what he does through his word. Just as he spoke physical creation into existence through his word, so... He speaks a spiritual new creation into the lives of his people by what 1 Peter says is this living and abiding word of God. I mean, think of Cornelius' conversion in Acts. If you know that story, you know that story takes a lot of precious time in the book of Acts. It is one of the most convoluted conversion stories you'll ever read. I mean, think about it. God goes out of his way to give Cornelius a Gentile a vision about some guy who's supposed to give a word to him. And then Cornelius sends a bunch of his men a long way to where this guy is supposed to be. And that guy, Peter, is also given a vision of a word that he's supposed to take to some Gentile. And so he then travels with Cornelius' men back to Cornelius. And then Cornelius says, you're supposed to do something. And what does Peter do? Peter preaches. God didn't have to do it that way, right? He could have just been like, presto, Christian. He could have just written 
words in the sky to explain the gospel. But God's not a genie, and he doesn't call us to cast spells. We're not magicians. We're ministers of the word. We bring that word to others. This convoluted story of Cornelius' conversion is in part to drive home the truth that God brings his people to faith when his people bring the word of God to the lost and they hear it and repent and believe. It's to make that point clear. It's about the message, not methods. So if what works is God's spirit through God's word, then friends, recognize we ought to spend the bulk of our energy and time studying the scriptures so that we can understand them and articulate them accurately. It's why we need to hear the word preached. It's why we need to prioritize preaching in our gathering. It's why we need to prioritize the word in all the gatherings of our church, not just assessing how various elements of the service you know, might connect with this learning style or that learning style. It means we ought to struggle more over selecting songs with biblically faithful lyrics than orchestrating some instrumental arrangement that puts people in the right mood. Friend, I figured, if you figured out, now, I am allergic to that language, in the right mood. You should be too. Because it sends the message that it's just the key. We can do it. Like little magicians, we can find it. We can flip that switch. We, God kind of involved in that, but we got it. So how sweet and awful is the place? Some of you may thought, what a strange song to sing. Go look at the lyrics. Reflect on those lyrics. Those are some of the sweetest theological lyrics you will read. And they will cause you to ask yourself, why are you saved? Do you have any reason to look to yourself and take confidence in you that you are saved? And that song says, no, not a one. And it's true. And we need to remember that. Because, friends, we can all be stirred up, right? We can raise our hands for Jesus, and we can never bow the knee. And sadly, it happens all the time when we mistake means for methods, and we miss the biblical message. Now, listen, we're going to think more about our response to the gospel next week. We're going to think more about the implications of this gospel message But I want you, as you go away, I want you to know that real change, real change is, it's possible. Real change is possible. Cynics will say it's not. You really can't change. No one changes. So just learn to accept yourself for who you are. And the cultural warriors will say any notion of change is offensive and intolerant. I get it. But deep down, friends, we need change. Every one of us needs change. And I think we know it. I think you know it. Not the kind of change brought about by a new football coach. Not the kind of change brought about by a new offensive scheme. Real change. Lasting change. The kind of change that does deliver. And friends, that's not only, that's not only possible. That kind of change is promised in the gospel. I know politicians promise it all the time. Only Jesus is the one who can deliver this kind of change. For in this room... There are hundreds of living, breathing examples of change. Proof, as John Newton once said, though we are not what we ought to be, we are not what we wish to be, we are not what we hope to be, and yet we can truly say we are not what we once were because God has transformed our lives. God alone 
through his word, by his spirit, breathing life into his people. That is the root of conversion. Friend, have you been born again? Is that root present in your own life? Let's pray.